are still e e r m n right that, that, that's what the letters e m r n yeah right okay i don't remember what the letters are because i have emojis uh, I'm, I was gonna say, I, I'm the queen of emojis you know yeah. that about me <laughs> I was gonna say, is that where you stole it from? I did not actually. I I did it myself, um, and I feel very honored that I am in the same place as Stephen. Great minds think alike, Uh, and you and and I just got there by coincidence. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, welcome to the Grading Podcast, where we'll take a critical lens to the methods of assessing students' learning, from traditional grading to alternative methods of grading. We'll look at how grades impact our classrooms and our students' success. I'm Robert Bosley, a high school math teacher, instructional coach, intervention specialist, and instructional designer in the Los Angeles Unified School District and with Cal State LA. And I'm Sharona Krinsky, a math instructor at Cal State Los Angeles, faculty coach, and instructional designer. Whether you work in higher ed or K-12, whatever your discipline is, Whether you are a teacher, a coach, or an administrator, this podcast is for you. Each week, you will get the practical, detailed information you need to be able to actually implement effective grading practices in your class and at your institution. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Robert Bosley, one of your co-hosts, and with me as always, Sharona Krinsky. How are you doing today, Sharona? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be continuing my week of talking about alt grading, but I am getting ready to switch my brain to the theater because we load in in two days. Yep. So that's exciting. How about you? You know, doing good. We've, at the time of this recording, I've already started my semester in my high school world. So always fun at the beginning of a new semester to see how things go. I'm excited for new beginnings. That's awesome. Well, we do have a third person sitting here with us in the virtual studio. Dr. Stephen Klons back with us for another episode. Welcome, Stephen. How are you doing Welcome today? Back. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So just in case people have not yet listened to the episode that you recorded with your partner in crime, Drew, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you again. So Dr. Stephen Klontz is a mathematician, professor, and puzzle designer based out of the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. His puzzles and games have been published in print and featured at such venues as the National Museum of Mathematics and included in map challenge events across the country. His scholarship includes research in general and set theoretic topology, as well as the advancement of the socio-technical infrastructure powering contemporary progress in mathematics and STEM education, research, and practice. In the classroom, Dr. Klontz uses active learning techniques, such as team-based inquiry learning, to allow his students to discover mathematics for themselves. I'm going to guess that that's a different bio than the one I read a couple weeks ago. It is. After I heard you say it, I was like, oh, I haven't touched that in uh, a few years. I should tweak it a bit. Well, that's fantastic. So Bosley and I just recorded an episode about calendaring that's about to come out. And one of the things that came up a lot during that episode and makes me very glad to be talking to you today is the use of tools to manage the logistics and structure of an alternative grading course. In particular, 
one of the biggest hurdles that we always face when we are introducing people to alternative grading is that pillar four reattempts without penalty, which everybody hears as extra quizzes, extra exams, and they go, oh my God, I can barely write my stuff now. So can you talk a little bit about what happened with you when you started with all grading and this whole reattempts without penalty thing? Yeah, absolutely. So my first semester was in spring of 20, I guess it would have been 17, my, my first year at South, but I, I met Drew in the fall. And so he gave me the confidence to do this wild standards-based grading thing that I'd only heard about, but never heard of anyone doing at the college level. So I had taken this. And what's interesting is that I feel like I was always destined for some sort of alternative grading because I remember my last few years of grad school, I had made essentially my first ever by hand outcomes-based problem bank for calculus three. It was 50 or 60 different standards, way more than I would do on a standards-based grading. But I did identify the need to let's whittle this down to specific learning outcomes or standards. Or I don't think I was that clever when I problem types, I probably thought of it at the time. And by hand, I had created at least five examples of each problem type and given that to my students and said, if you could do these, that's the kind of flavor of what I'm going to put on an exam, not a 50 question exam, but for the final exam, because I just found that the textbooks were just too meandering in terms of what kinds of problems they would have at the back of each section. They, they were not focused on, you know, they, they were vaguely, you can do this stuff if you read this section or you follow this section, but it wasn't really outcomes based on life. That one took a lot of work. So that's still on my GitHub somewhere, just where I teched it up in, uh, I guess, 2015. And then when I realized, oh, I could actually do the grading system that is tracking each individual outcome, I knew I needed more than just a finite number or five of each problem type. And I had to tighten it up to have about, I think probably it was, it was a four-hour calculus two. I think I had, oh, 15-ish core standards and 15-ish supplementary standards. I don't do that anymore, like distinguishing the two types because it's more trouble than it's worth, I think. But that's what I had. And I was doing everything by hand. I think I had biweekly quizzes that I gave them. And I had like some sort of rolling schedule where I would quiz everything three times. So we cover it and then it would show up in the next three of those uh, mastery quizzes or whatever I called them. Um, and then they came by my office hours and I would just whip one up uh, off, the, off the top of my head. No mechanism for the speed bumps, right? No mechanism for limiting things or an economy of tokens or whatever people do. It was just, yeah, come by, I'll write you a new problem. And I still have flashbacks sometimes to the last week of that semester when, yeah. So at the end of that semester, I had lots of students who still wanted to demonstrate understanding of particular learning outcomes. And that's great. But then suddenly I had the gauntlet. I had like this line of students coming out, overflowing into the uh, the main office area of the, the math department. And, and I, I, I chuckled because sometimes I remember my department chair gave me really high marks in my faculty review for uh, teaching because, oh, you must be so popular. Students are just lining up out the door to see you. I was like, it's because I forced them to. I put them in a position. I mean, give me that nine out of 10 or whatever I got. I'll, I'll take it. But um, it was not because I was a good teacher. It was because 
I had not yet found the right gameplay balance for getting my students into my office or wherever I needed them to be at the time to do these reassessments. And so there was that, of course, and there was also the issue of that's a lot of problems to rewrite. And I could whip up a calculus two problem. I have in the back of my head roughly how to write these problems for any of these integration by parts. Sure. Just give me an X here and a trig or an exponential here, and then put in some little tiny coefficient and, and that's fine. Uh, but the next semester uh, after Drew and I had gotten this wild idea that we're going to redesign our teammates inquiry learning course, or well, we didn't have those words at the time. We were redesign this linear algebra course and something that we called team-based learning. We realized eventually was worth having its own name of team-based inquiry learning. I hadn't ta- taught linear algebra before. And what I quickly realized is uh, it's hard work whipping up a random linear system I mean, pretty much every problem, you, if you have a row-reducible matrix, you could just write the problem based on that row-reducible matrix. But that's not something you can just pop up in your head. I can't, anyway. And so I had to... I don't even remember what I did. I think I just would write a problem, and I would just tweak it. Like I said, give me a second. I'm going to fix these numbers so it works out the way I want it to work out for you. But that was really tedious. And then, of course, I had to write all these different exams, especially doing the... I think I was still doing the... Every other week, three, it shows up three times, and I'll, after that, come by my office, sort of workflow. Oh, goodness, if I had made a mistake writing the problems, then suddenly it was a whole rigmarole of, it's not as bad as with traditional grading, where you've heard, you have to make up points and, and move numbers to, to fix it. But when you're doing it so often, you're more likely to make a mistake in writing a problem, and then it's just annoying for everybody, even if you can just give them a new version. And that's where I was like, okay, I've got to code up something. So going back in time a bit further, I've always been interested in programming. My father is a electrical engineer. I remember I got my first book about programming, how to program in basic. I was camping with my family and I was in a tent reading about how to program in basic from like a paperback. And I was just just reading it. I don't know what that says about me, but it says something, I'm sure, that I would just read a book about programming on my camp out with my family in a tent that had popped up in the middle of the woods. And I just read it and like, I was like, oh, yeah, I get what's going on there. And so I remember I got back home and uh, sat down at the MS-DOS prompt and started typing basic commands. And I was, it didn't work because you don't do it on the command line. You have to actually pull up a text editor or, or I think it was quick basic um, command line program. And so my dad helped me out there and I was off to the races. And so I programmed little games and basic. Um, eventually I moved on to visual basic and I did some windows GUI applications. I remember I programmed the weakest link. That was a, a game show once upon a time that my scholarship team would do an annual game show fundraiser for the school. And so I, I made a weakest link game board, which is kind of fun. And then I, then I got to college. I kind of pretty much set this stuff to the side because I was, I was mathing. I was doing just a pure math degree. I don't know why I didn't at least double major in computer science, but I didn't. I think it's probably my MATLAB course, my freshman year where they, they indexed by one and that was expensive. And I was like, I don't know, I don't want to do that. Math. And so I did a bunch of math, but it just kept coming back. In grad school, I got really into web development, really into coming up with, I'm a band nerd. I was frustrated that Every time that they ran an event, they had 
people fill out this like two page form with information they had from the previous event. They had come to a previous event. And so I, was, I didn't know the words at the time, but I, I ended up making a customer relationship management software as a service, CRMSAIS. Uh, that's, that's the thing. I, I know there's words for it now. I made that or I co-made that with my partner in crime, James Dabbs, who I still work with on a database of topological spaces these days, although he was smart and got a real job as a software engineer instead of getting his PhD in math and becoming a professor like me. So I knew enough to be dangerous, I guess is what I'm trying to get my rambling back to. I like, I've got to program something. I've got to, at least for me, I want to be able to like have some code to just spit out these problems. And so that was the first iteration of what would become Check It. So you said that was the first iteration. I seem to recall it had a different name in its first iteration. Yeah, absolutely it did. So I don't think it had a name at all in my very, very first iteration. I'll talk about that and then I'll talk about the original name. So this nameless script, I think it was just called DiffyQ Problem Bank, which is just a bunch of sage math scripts that would generate... How did it even work? That was so long ago. <laughs> it, it would generate the randomized bits of a problem. I think I was just inserting it into a, a LaTeX template. Oh, no. Oh, I remember now. Oh, it's awful. I had Sage Math scripts that would generate randomized bits of the problem. I had a LaTeX document that would use something called Embedded Ruby. So it had a whole other programming language just because I was used to it from Ruby on Rails and this, this web development stuff. And so I had to run Sage Math to get random bits, run Ruby to insert them into this template, run LaTeX. I guess I have to run LaTeX. I, I think at that point I was also working on my, uh, oh, I made a mastery grading grade book. I forgot that part of the puzzle. It has nothing to do with check it, but it was another thing where we were not a Canvas campus yet. We had Sakai and I'd never to this day have used Sakai because I just heard enough people complain about it. I was like, you know what? I could probably just hack together something that I was happier with. And so I, it was the first time that we met Toronto that I went to this math fest and presented my Ruby on Rails grade book for mastery grading. And part of what it did was I could make problem banks and it would actually generate personalized quizzes for every student. So I would tell it, I want a quiz that covers these outcomes, but if the student has mastered that outcome, it would just say, you've already done this. Hey, yay. And uh, so that was really, I was actually kind of neat. I was happy with that, but it was not something that other people could use. I was not, I mean, it's a Ruby on Rails app, so it's a web app. I could have put it on the web and done a little bit more work to actually make logins and such, but I didn't want to because I didn't want to store FERPA protected data. That's a lot of responsibility. And so I didn't do that. So I just had this thing for myself. And eventually I, I heard that we were going to move to Cam Canvas. I knew that Canvas had the Learning Mastery Gradebook. And so I was thinking about the, the future and I, I try not to run web apps that have to have a server that has to, that has to be maintained by somebody because then that somebody is me and that's extra work for me to do. And when it goes down, I have to actually respond to it. Um, so I was thinking, okay, and, and, and grade books exist, right? <laughs> Canvas has a, a, a workable one, even for master grading. What I really wanted though was and I had started getting involved in the pretext community. I started meeting people doing open source educational technology development. And eventually I was like, surely this exists. But eventually I convinced myself, no, this does not exist. 
There is not a exercise generation framework that, I mean, there's web work, there, there's my open math. There are these things, but they're all just generating exercises for their specific platform, right? It's for their web app for people to go in. And they were also very focused on uh, the hard problem of automatically grading these things. Yes. Uh, it's 3.14, the same as pi sorts of things. And I didn't care about any of that because I want humans to read and give feedback to solutions submitted by other humans. I just wanted to be able to produce randomized problems. And then I wanted to be agnostic to whether those problems were going to be put on a paper quiz or on a, a you could put it in Canvas and in the learning management system, uh, but it's just full response. Just upload your your work, uh, or even before that, it was GradeScope. I think I was using at the time actually because I hadn't. That's before the pandemic. I'll, I'll get to that part of the story at some point because as, as all <laughs> as all conversations at least five years old do, things drastically changed when the fire <laughs> nation attacked. So I had this thing that was working for me then. But eventually I was like, I want other people to use this. I don't want to be the person that's responsible for, hey, Stephen, generate a randomized bank of these. I think I had differential equations was the first one I actually did. And then, yeah, it was differential equations and linear algebra. And I think as soon as I made that second course, I was like, this needs to be not just a hacky script that I'm, I'm forking and, and tweaking, but an actual application. Thus, Master It was born. And so Master It with no E, so it's M-A-S-T-R-I-T, because very Web 2.0 of me to just drop a vowel for no reason. I have to admit, I'm not sure I ever realized the E was gone. I don't know if if it, it changed names soon enough afterwards that I can't remember if I actually went live with the E or not. But I remember it was that in my head for a long time. And I think that was before it was versioned. It was just master it. And that was where I was like, okay, let's figure out the philosophy of what a master it bank should be. And so the idea is that you have two things you have to author for every learning outcome. You author a generator, which is a piece of code that generates the randomized bits of the problem, like the numbers, the functions, the variables, all that stuff. And then you have a template. And at that point, the templates were using a subset of pretext. Uh, for those who don't know what pretext is, pretext is an, a, a templating or sorry, a markup language for describing scholarly documents, particularly textbooks. If you've ever heard of Active Calculus by Matt Vulcans or Abstract Algebra Theory and Applications by Tom Judson, Open Introduction to Discrete Mathematics by Oscar Levin. These are some of the big math textbooks that are free and open source and authored in the pretext language. And so I, I took the just the exercise part of the language, the stuff that can go in an exercise tag of pretext, and then a very small subset of the formatting options that you could have. And, and I, I just, I, don't, I think I just called it pretext, subset of pretext. I don't know. I waved my hands and said, this is what you're allowed to write in your templates. And at that point, it was mostly just me anyway, still at that stage. Although I had long-term plans for getting this out there. So then what you do, once you've authored all those, then it created a web application. But it was, try not to get too into the gory details, but essentially that web application does not require a server. It is just HTML and JavaScript, and it runs completely in your web browser. 
So your web browser doesn't know how to like to process SageMath code, but all that's pre-processed up front. So you author this material. I think at that time you just run a command line application to generate this static website that looks and feels like a web application that's interactive, but it's really just a bunch of JavaScript moving things around on your screen and within your web browser, not like querying a server to show and hide the different types of problems. And then it had, essentially you could do two things, three things with this. Once you've generated this website, put it up on the internet somewhere. The first thing you could do is it showed, I think at that time, 50 different examples of every learning outcome. There's your problem set to give to your students. I eventually changed 50 to 20 because, well, students, I, I don't know if I believe this, but some students said, I did all 50 examples and I never saw a problem of that type on, on when you, that you put on my quiz. And I'm like, I don't buy that. But I definitely don't think anyone should ever do 50 problems. So I, they aren't that dissimilar. So I think I, I made the default uh, 20, which if you do all 20, I still think it's probably a bit much, but it's it's enough that I thought that was a good, you had enough variety to see what kinds of problems might pop up for a particular outcome. So you have that website and that's still true for Check It today. And then you could export a tech file. You could produce a tech file that, that you could run. I think at that point, you just copy paste the tech, put it into your favorite tech editor, or put it into Overleaf manually. And then that would uh, process, you could process that to a PDF and that would be your printable. Uh, they were no longer personalized on your old gradebook system because it doesn't know anything about students, which is by design because I don't want to know anything about your students. I don't want to be responsible for all that. Uh, but you can just produce these, these quizzes that are outcomes aligned. Um, okay. 2020. Dun, dun, dun. All right. We get to 2020 and everything changes. First of thing, of course, was the pandemic in, in March of 2020 when I had to pivot fully online. And I think essentially for that semester, I was teaching linear algebra and all I did was, okay, every week I'm going to just give everyone the same PDF. You write up your solutions and upload them to Gradescope and I'll grade them. Uh, everyone's had the same solutions. <laughs> do whatever you got to do to get me some answers to show me that you're engaged. This is This is peak introductory of pandemic. If, if there's any learning happening, I'm thrilled. I'm not going to over engineer something to make it fair or make, you know, for, for academic honesty while we're all hunkered, punk, bunkered down in our homes. But it did make it very clear to me that I didn't have the learning management system. We had Canvas at that time and I was still doing everything on paper, like paper quizzes at the beginning of every class. I think I'd switched to doing like the first 15 minutes of every class at the same time in a class that semester. And I had some thoughts like, well, first of all, I can't do that anymore. We're now online. Uh, I have to do something different, um, especially for, I mean, I know it's all going to blow over by, by May of 2020. Right. But what if it just dragged out? Right. I have to have yeah, some the whole two weeks. Right. Yeah, there we go. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the, the crazy things we said in, in late March of 2020. So we, I had to have some idea of what, what, what will I do this fall? What I have to actually, you know, have some time to like think carefully about this problem. And then not only do we have to, so there's no learning management system there. The, the other thing that happened of course, was the summer of 2020 with all of the social justice issues that came to the forefront and suddenly master bedrooms became primary, primary. bedrooms. Yeah. Uh, well, and um, that summer was the first grading conference and we had that first huge conversation about yeah. the word mastery grading. 
Did did we have it that first one or was it the second year? No, it was, it was the first, the first one. one. It primarily was in the virtual social hour in the evening of the first event is when it really took off. Yeah. I was there for that. I remember that conversation. Yeah. So so the question was do we use do I had this product that I was still just using with me and a, a couple of friends basically, but I had not made a big announcement that this thing existed. I don't remember I'm sure I, I think I presented on it at that first grading conference, but I think it was purely just, this is something that's coming down the pipeline, not ready for production. And I called it master it. And, and then I was like, do we like mastery grading anymore? I'm always of the opinion that even if I don't think something's a big deal, but I know it upsets somebody, it does not hurt me one bit to just change the language that I use. Right. And I, I think that, um, uh, it's beyond my ken to go too deep into whether master is or is not uh, a good term to use. I just know it hurts people, hurts some people, and I don't want to hurt people. And I had not yet released this and in, in, into production for other people to use. Let's just come up with a new name. So, all right. So we're not going to use the term master it. What am I going to call it? My students always called my alternative grading system the checkmark system because I didn't, I don't, I, you know, MRFN, you know, the sorts of things. Letters are still or e, e R M N, right? That, that, that's what the letters E M R N. Yeah, right. Okay. I don't remember what the letters are because I have emojis. Uh, I was going to say, I'm the queen of emojis. You know yeah. that about me. <laughs> I had to say, is that where you stole it from? I did not actually. I I did it myself and I feel very honored that I am in the same place as Steven. Great minds think alike. And you and and I just got there by coincidence. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we, we both have this bright idea that, you know, let's just, we, we don't have to have numbers or letters. We can just use symbols. So I had like check marks was the meets expectations, what I would call the English. I think I called it master at that point. But again, I switched from master to meets expectations. I'm really happy with that, not just to avoid problematic language, but also because it made me feel a lot better about giving people check marks because mastered is stronger than meeting expectations. Like I'll give someone a check mark, even if it's not completely correct. But that meets my expectations for where you're at developmentally, if especially especially in the 100 level, like calculus course, calculus two. Well, I'll and I wanted feedback. Go ahead. I wanted to say that I, for years, have been very happy with the emojis, and then this semester, I started getting students getting unhappy when they got a cloud because that's one of my emojis. They're like, ah, this is my first cloud, and I'm like, really? We're gonna object to clouds. So, and I just had to share that on the, even now the emojis mean something. I use thought bubbles instead of clouds. I don't know if that is significantly different enough that it, because it, it, that stands for shows progress, but requires for their study, the study being the thought bubble. I, don't I know, did maybe. switch in one of mine to the thinking face man. So I might well, like this. Go, yeah, that one. Our listeners can't see me doing it, but you, you know <laughs> in your mind what I'm doing. Yeah. So I might switch to that one. That's pretty good. Maybe do the the monocle emoji. Maybe that's a, hmm, yeah, interesting. <laughs> anyway, I do like the yeah. Level, though. All right, so so I have this product. I decided to switch to check it, and I think if you go to my readme, I forget somebody on social media 
really convinced me to go over the edge. And I think they still have a shout out on the readme for check it. And I, I, I don't have it pulled up. So, so shout outs to Jean Sebastian, shout outs to Jean Sebastian. And I still have a, a link to his, can I call, I'm going to still call it a Twitter post, a tweet, his ex post, I suppose these days where um, check it emphasizes the purpose of the platform to check student understanding while also reflecting the use of check marks and many outcomes based grading systems, such as my own. So there we have it. So there's the uh, etymology of check it. And that was where, and I noticed that the very first, and the initial commit, I think it was right after the grading conference in June of 2020, when it was called master it for about two months. So I had this thing that was out there that I wanted people to actually use. And by the fall, it was ready, I thought, for other users. So yeah, so that, that's kind of the, the, the big launch. Uh, so I guess it's been three and a half years uh, of, of Check It in production. The idea is that if you are willing to jump through the hoops that uh, it takes to read the documentation, that you too can write your randomized bits in Sage Math and then use what's now called SPA text, SPA for Simplified Pretext for Apps is SPA text because it's like pretext, but SPA text. So it's a little bit simplified compared to pretext. And so if you're willing to learn that language when it's not hard because there's only like 12 different tags, which is a design decision that you can't do a whole lot with it to not make it hard to learn. And then, yeah, you can write your own app. You put your app up on GitHub pages or whatever free static site host you want. And then you can export your learning management system like cartridge. So something you can upload to Moodle or Canvas or D2L Brightspace. And of course, that was part of the fall 2020 pivot was I realized I wasn't going to be back in the classroom for a while. So let's make sure that we could set up randomized quizzes in Canvas based on these problems. And so now you have the option of, of printing it out on paper or uploading it to your learning management system using its randomized quiz interface. You still have to have students upload solutions that they hand write, like take a photo of it and upload. Because again, I... I not quite. Not quite. Not quite. So I want to interject here because sure. I come into the picture and, and Bosley as well for fall 2020. Okay. So I get handed my first linear algebra class for fall 2020 and I scream for help to Drew and you have just brought the linear algebra check it online. So I'm one of the very early adopters that is not you and Drew. And I do this for linear algebra. I think it's, the chef's kiss cats me out. Right. And I turned to Bosley and I'm like, we have to do this for statistics because here I am. That's great. I'm doing it for my linear algebra class, my 25 students, and I'm managing a program of almost 2000 students. And what I had done before the pandemic is I printed about seven versions of the quiz and we had it all staggered. So like the eight o'clock and the nine o'clock classes could have the same quiz because they couldn't get from one to the other. But then the 10 o'clock had to have a different one because by then it had been long enough. So I had them in, I had an eight and nine block. I had a 10 and 11 block. I had a one and three for my Monday, Wednesday classes. And then I had blocks for my Tuesday, Thursday. So I ended up with between seven and nine versions of this paper quiz and I had to print them out. I had to package them in sets of 25. I had to get the right quiz in the hands of the right instructor. And I had to have matching answer keys because again, 
this is pre-pandemic and we are concerned about academic integrity with a program of 2000 because it's just the the incentives are too high. So now we're going into the pandemic. We're doing a little bit. We, we have already converted to Canvas quizzes because we actually had started using some of that in the spring of 2020 before we even knew that this was going to happen. And in the meantime, I'm doing my first linear algebra. I'm using this and I'm like, Steven, I want to do this, but I can't do file uploads. Can you please create an essay response option? And you did. So you actually have, I don't even know if you remember this, check it does essay response versions for Canvas. So that's a feature of it now. It wasn't a feature even when you asked me. I told no, you how I to asked you to make this. it. Well, right. But the, the first thing I did was, well, I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to tell you what line of code to hack into your copy of the Check It software. And so there was just this one line of that you had to like go into the dive I don't the think that's what happened because you made us our own custom copy and I think you hacked it for us. Okay, you're right. You're right. <laughs> because I that's don't right. remember doing that. That's right. I found that one line and I hacked it for you. And I, and that was officially Sharona's check it on yes. and the it still project is. somewhere. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's there. It's now a feature that you can select for for canvas to whether to make it a, a file upload question or an essay response question right. uh, that's that's something that you you choose your learning management system and if you choose canvas you have those two options so it's now officially a feature but that's of course how all features come is somebody asks nicely and i find a way to make it work for them and then i'm like okay how do i you know how do i get this out to to other people in a, a reasonable fashion right so and then i participated in the tbil first cohort in yep. summer of 2021. And that was the summer, I think, Boz, where we did our big development was that summer where we did all the authoring. So I'm going to bring you into this conversation, Boz. So you come along and I'm like, so I don't want to <laughs> do all this programming. <laughs> so what did you yeah, do you, for that? So Yeah, you, you came to me and you're like, I, I've got this great tool that's going to allow us, you know, to do all these randomized versions uh, you know, we're going to use it for statistics. I just need a little bit of your help. I have no programming background whatsoever. Mine's like, probably bigger than his. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the closest thing I'd ever come to programming is I can write the heck out of a, a Excel sheets. You know, I, I can write algorithms and do things with Excel that is impressive, but that's as close to program as I've ever come. And she dumps this into my lap and I spend the entire summer teaching myself by go, basically going and looking at what you had done and looking at some of the other coding that some of the other people that had, you know, been early adopters of this had done and tried to basically cheat my way by stealing all of your stuff in, until I figured out what was going on. But yeah, I spent that entire summer. Okay, you know, to be fair, easily he did get paid. Okay, I want to be clear. He did get paid <laughs> to do this. But Tian Chi had also, had at some point right around there, written one for statistics. So yep. we stole the linear algebra one and reverse engineered the sage math. We stole the Tian Chi statistics and reverse engineered the statistics for sage math. 
I'm, I'm going to say you adopted under the terms of a permissive open source license. Okay. Let, you know. But we stealing still have hubcaps like, here. It's a different type it, of stealing. I know. It's stealing hubcaps <laughs> is, is totally legit and, and a time-honored tradition in our community. I, I, yes. I don't want to discuss Yes, that. this is true. But you're right. This is all under open source Creative Commons licenses. So we do want to make that clear. And so what we ended up splitting the job of authoring the problems and the coding. Because I'm the one who writes, he's the one who tells me I'm insane and I need to rewrite. And then I hand it to him. And it took us a while to figure out how to make it do what we wanted. Because you did not write this for English language generated options. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's our course. Yeah. And so we kept going, Stephen, how can we make this this you know, figure out whether it needs an and or a them or a they or a the or an ah, you know, because with the English language, like you might be transitioning from singular to plural, you might be doing. And so you're like, yeah, dude, that's, yeah. I'm out. Lots and lots of if statements, right? <laughs> you know, oh yeah. my God, we did so many. <laughs> but then you went to the next generation of Check It with the different type of templating structure. And is it partially because I kept asking all these questions? I'm kind of curious. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Because I've switched to using Mustache, which is a, a, a templating language that exists for other sorts of software. It's, it's a big open source project. I forget what I used before before that. Like, So before I had to use the curly braces to, to author your template, how did you insert the random bits? Do you remember? Because I do not at this point. Well, it was before you went to the Knolls. So, yeah. so we have... St- started because yeah, you you were using the pre subset of pretext before i rebranded that and renamed i, I simplified the language into spa text right. um, i think at that same time i also i believe i switched from a, a templating languages the the way you insert the random bits into i might be making that up maybe it was always the, the curly i think brackets. it was always the curly brackets but the yeah. challenge that we had is we had to put a lot of extra variables in to it wasn't even that. It was actually that when we put new scenarios in, we had to completely change the programming structure of the Python, uh, of the SageMath, because we couldn't keep like the clauses in the same place. They didn't make sense. Yeah. And when we went to the new templates, we could just write the scenario a lot more freely. And that just made it so much easier. So it was more yeah, that I side of it. I think I remember helping y'all at some point, like looking at some of the problems you did. At that point, you were doing a lot of the authoring and the generator side. And so there's this, yes. this paradigm called separation of concerns. Like if you're, you know, se- you know, separation of content from style, separation from business logic, from from authoring like words. And so I think what we you had was of these big if statements, picking strings and sage math, and then shipping over those those sentences, those paragraphs to stick it to your template. And then we switched from that to just roll a virtual die and it gets a number between one and 20. And then on the template side, you just basically have different versions of the problem that only, sh- but it only shows the one that you rolled for, for that, whatever that result was. And so all the right. authoring happens over there. And then it's a lot easier to kind of, cause you have, you're, you're actually writing in a templating language and not inside of your st- a string and, and some sage right. math code. And then you can, yeah, and the other trick, you know, the other little tricks like, okay, well, 
a and and is a pain so either you can just include the article as part of the random thing that you're generating on the sage side or you could just make sure your words always start with a consonant and, and then it works um you know so there's lots of little different hacks and things um i do want to think more about how we can better support word problems in general that's a big problem space and and check it or 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 more generally any randomized exercise generation is that you know there's students will stop reading if they see enough of these examples and realize oh the words are the same every time i just gotta look at these little random the the three random numbers and then memorize the recipe and what i do with those numbers and that's of course totally not what we want Uh, and so So that's um, the thing is we're approaching this conversation that we're clearly the early adopters. I mean, you wrote this thing. I adopted this thing really early. Boz taught himself this thing really early. But where are we now? Because this thing about reattempts, which one clarification I want to make that came up in a workshop this week, the pillar is reattempts without penalty. The thing that we are reattempting is to show evidence of learning on a learning outcome. We are not necessarily reattempting a specific problem, a specific assignment, a specific homework. So I want to encourage every people, we are currently talking about a tool that does a lot of problem generation. If people need to reattempt through a quiz structure or through something like that, but the pillar really is reattempting evidence of learning. So I did want to clarify that, but where are we going? Because the reality is most instructors are not going to be able to do what we did here. So where, where are we going with check it with open source? What's, what does the future look like for dealing with this issue of reassessments? Cause it's one of the biggest hurdles. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's one thing about check it that I'm really happy with. And another thing that I'm really unhappy with, I'll start, I'll start with the unhappy bit first. The unhappy bit is that it's not that easy to get started authoring your own check it bank. I've been to enough grading conferences to and hang out in the tech talk special session and everyone's like, here's my thing that I hacked together. And if you email me, I'll send you the code and, and Godspeed, hopefully you can figure it out. There's a lot of stuff that can be technically done, but it's not, we don't have that, that socio-technical infrastructure. We don't have that, that, that there's no documentation. There's no plug and play sort of setup. Like in check it is still at that stage as well. I've, the, not to go too deep into the weeds, but there's a lot that I've learned writing authoring tools for pretext to make it so that you could just pull, whip up a, a web browser with your GitHub account and go to the races. That's something that Check It needs. And that's part of why what I hope to tackle in this sabbatical that I'm in this spring is to make it so that you just click big green buttons and you have a working version of Check It rather than having to do what y'all are doing now, which is have a CoCalc account that you probably pay for a license for. So it can be wired up to the internet and have enough processing power, but there's still uh, a decent amount of things you need to do to get that going. One thing I'm happy with is that if you go through all that rigmarole and then you get your bank up on the internet, it's at the end of the day, just a static website with some JavaScript. Anyone on the internet can just go to checkit.clons.org. And I have examples of linear algebra, differential equations and calculus banks and you don't have to know the first thing about programming or anything. It's just, it's an app that anybody can go and use. And you can click, I want to build an assessment with these five learning outcomes, clicky draggy, set the order they're going to show up. And then there's an export to Overleaf button. 
And so you click that export to Overleaf button. And then if you're logged in your Overleaf account or you make account and log in, it'll process that tech into a PDF. You download it. And I have definitely done this, showed up to, to work 15 minutes before class begins, having to give a, an exam, like a midterm exam. I've gone there and just click, 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 midterm exam, six different versions. Here you kids go, have fun. That for end users, like putting a product out there that lots of people can use if someone else has gone through the heck that y'all gone through to actually figure out how to author it and, and deploy it. I'm happy with that. And that's something I want to keep around, but I want to make the authoring experience a lot nicer. And you can, one of the more recent versions of Check It, you can actually do slight tweaks to templates. Like if you really prefer to say rate of change instead of derivative, you can make that change in the web app. Uh, just don't refresh your browser because then you'll you'll lose your change. But if you do it in your web browser and then you immediately export it to your to your PDF or you can just click, click, click. Here's my file of, of problem banks to upload to Canvas. You know, that's all something you can do as an end user without knowing anything about programming. You can just use the app to do it. So so I'm happy with that. Authoring experience, no. We got a lot of work to be done. Y'all twisted my arm hard enough. One of, one of the other things that y'all have a big influence on is the fact that there is some sort of image support in Check It now. I don't want to go too deep into the weeds of the technicalities of why images are so hard compared to other to other content, like equations and text. But, well, but our images were the easy version. See, you guys were trying to do randomly generated images. So I'm like, no, I just need the same image all the time. And you're like, oh, I could do that. Yeah. So I think I hacked that in there. It was another one of those Sharona version of check that y'all used until 0.2 came out where they actually made those proper features. And yeah. then, right. So then y'all well, had We're still support. using, I think it in the old structure in part because we are doing static images and not generated images um, in part because our images are too hard to generate. So we just yeah. generate images that you can write 16 versions of the problems about the same image. A lot of bar graphs, histograms, correlation stuff. So, yeah, and that's and that's a, a feature of of the production version of Check It now. Whether you're using that or not, I don't know. But no, we're still on yeah. ours. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So you can you can so Sage Math. One of the reasons I, I I like Sage Math as the the scripting language for the generators is that every object in Sage Math has a tech representation, a LaTeX representation. So if you build your equation in the symbolic language, symbolic algebra system of, of SageMath, you can wrap it in a LaTeX function and then it will give you the LaTeX markup. And so you don't have to like actually type up any LaTeX for the random bits, uh, which can be a huge pain if you're like trying to generate a random fraction, right? To have to like backslash frac, right. curly braces. So you SageMath will do that for you automatically. And if you have an equation, you just wrap it in a plot and suddenly you have this graphics object that check it knows how to process that into a PNG picture file and put it in the right place. But then, but then suddenly your bank is like a hundred times as large every time you do. Well, not every time you do it, as soon as you have that first image based problem, because it has to pre generate all the different versions of that picture. And then those, all those images have to go up on the internet somewhere. And suddenly you have this tiny little, you know, 20 megabyte site that explodes into, you know, 200 megabytes because of all those images. And that's that's a infrastructure issue that, that I hope to, in my infinite time of sabbatical, in my 0.3 release of Check It to, to, to make that a little bit nicer. That and the other philosophy of Check It that has not been realized is that 
you don't have to actually write things in SageMath. If you like Python, if you like JavaScript, if you like God help you Perl, you know, one of the people, I think the other reason people use, you know, and I should say nice things about WebWorks. They're part of the pros consortium of open source STEM products, which is one of my NSF grants. Like, no, no, I should, I should, I should not throw any shade at WebWorks because they are doing uh, the Lord's work for a lot of folks that want a good free online homework system, but I don't want to learn Perl. I don't I know a lot of people don't want to write their, their programs in Perl when there are much better languages for mathematicians, Python and SageMath coming readily to mind uh, that are free and open source. And so being able to choose your own language for authoring for the random bits so you can come in with whatever knowledge you have. And if you've only, I don't know if I'll support basic or, well, I don't have, if you really are, want to write everything in basic, I can teach you how to write the wrapper uh, that, that <laughs> could make a plugin for basic for check it. It's, it's one of the design philosophies is that folks can come in and write in their favorite language, the generation of the random bits, and then uh, provide that framework for inserting that into a template, wrapping that up into a website that you could put on the internet. So that you have your practice problems for your students. And then you as an instructor can use that website to export your randomized quizzes, your LMS cartridges for, for randomized quizzes on, on your LMS. So I, I do have a real quick question about that last part you were just talking about. So there are dozens, if not hundreds of different LMS systems out there now, all with their strengths and weaknesses. You were talking earlier about how easy it is that someone can go and, and generate a, a paper version of a, a quiz or a test using Check It and just like you said, clicking on a few things and it generates five versions. Is it as easy to generate something that then can be uploaded into an LMS system? D does Check It currently support most LMS systems? Is it just, I mean, we've talked because all three of us use Canvas at the college at the college level. So I know it's easy to do it in Canvas, but you know, what about Moodle and Blackboard and Schoology and what's that? D DTL, DT, D2L, Brightspace. Brightspace, yeah. Like which which ones currently are or are can any of them be used? So LMS support, like any good open source project, new new features get added and my arm gets twisted hard enough by the community. And so for Canvas, D2L, Brightspace, and Moodle, my arm has been twisted hard enough. I only am a, I'm a Canvas user. So the, the other thing is if people listening like, ooh, I really want Blackboard support. I've gotten that before, but nobody's done wanted enough that they would sit down with me and give me the information I need. Cause I don't know, there's supposed to be an open standard for problem banks and learning management systems. That is a, that is a complete fiction in practice. Like <laughs> every, every learning management system has their own tweak of the standard. And so I have to manually produce different outputs for each of these three learning management systems I do support. And so if you want blackboard support, you know, now is the semester, I guess, to ask it of me, uh, but you'll have to sit down with me and say, uh, you know, I'll have you like, okay, manually create a quiz in Blackboard. Uh, oh, I could get access to the specification for, for Blackboard, but then I would have to pay them $1,000 that I don't have, right? And so really, uh, it's just reverse engineering. Again, shout outs to my father, whose, whose email address was reverse engineer at earthlink.net, I think, back in the day. So I have to reverse engineer, reverse engineer these these card quiz cartridges that are exportable from these systems and then figure out, okay, well, if I insert my bits into these parts of that thing and I'll hack that together and I'll give it back to 
the Blackboard user and say, hey, try importing this and let me know if it works. And if it doesn't, what goes wrong? We're going to go back and forth until we get it working. Yeah. And then, of course, there's like, you know, classic quizzes and new quizzes in Canvas. I don't have new quizzes support and I'll have to do that someday. You know, it'll definitely happen before they kill classic quizzes. Yeah, I think they might have taken the, the kill off. That's good. Again, it's, because it's, it's, it, last time know, I used it, it, it the, for randomized quizzes, it's just not there. Yeah. So where, where do we go from here? Because we're all three in mathematics. This movement is definitely going beyond mathematics at this point. I think some disciplines have more inherent ways of getting the versioning they need, and some are harder. I work with a lot of engineering folks, and most of their auto-generated problems are behind a publisher paywall and are designed for auto-grading. There's pros and cons. And I do want to emphasize to people, as much as I'm a major aficionado of non-auto-graded, I do think there's a space where auto-grading works to a degree to do what you got to do. And if that is what you have access to, please use it. Please go ahead and use auto-grading if that's going to make what you're doing this possible. I mentioned a couple of times we spoke with Dr. Eden Tanner, who has a 170-person Gen Chem class. And she's like, yeah, I'm multiple choicing it. I 170 students. So, but, and you might say, oh, well, that's not really doing what we want to do. Her students all passed the national chemistry exam, which is like unheard of. So it's still working. It can be done. But where do we go from here? I mean, this is the big part. I hear a lot about testing centers. I mean, the three of us philosophically have said, okay, 900 versions of this problem and most of our students aren't going to cheat. I'm good enough. Some people are not there. So where do we go? Do we go to testing centers? What do we do with this assessment issue? Yeah, I think one of the things that, that came out of, and we never followed up on it, but I, I heard lots of really good talks. And I want to say it was the most recent grading conference from folks in other disciplines that are producing banks of problems that aren't behind a paywall, free to open source banks of problems. But these are like community efforts just to author like these manually author these banks of problems. And I feel like there's, I, I'm starting to think about large language models and chat GPT and how can we use these systems modulo the uh, ethics issues, right? Uh, so I have to like investigate this, but I'm not putting any of this into production until I think we have a lot more clear community consensus on the ethics of using such tools, right? But let's just, let's say that we have an LLM trained on free and open licensed materials. So there's no fair use, waving of hands, but like, no, legitimately, this is software that was trained on free and open source content. I, I have no qualms about this. So let's say I find that, and then suddenly I can generate not just different randomized numbers to place it here and here, but also, hey, yo, large language model, can you ask me the same question, but in a different voicing or, or like just rejigger re the grammar, right? There's a lot that can be done, especially with the word problems, I think in that sort of situation. But at the end of the day, however you get these problems generated, authored manually, what, what have you, we need banks and we need community collaboration to, to make these banks open and accessible. And people are also have different feelings about, well, what if students find the bank? And I'm like, well, if we had 10,000 problems in the bank, it wouldn't for, for an outcome. God bless them if they want to memorize 10,000 different versions of a problem, right? Or or if it's, you know, it's going to be free and open, but not like 
in a format that makes it easy just to look up answers to a particular problem, right? Maybe it's technically possible, but there's a certain point where it's easier just to learn the thing, right? It's easier to do what you were asked to do by the instructor than to cheat it. So, so I think this is, there is a Banks channel on the, the grading Slack, uh, the, the alternative grading Slack. I would love for you to at me in that channel sometime say hey i've got this bank or i want to generalize randomized banks i think i think that that we need to be thinking about how do we create a model that works for more disciplines and provide people support there's a check it app i think it's check it dash app channel in the alternative grading slack that's where you can come and connect with folks and i i I know i have a friend in that who asked me a question a week ago that i need to get back to but but i've been traveling for joint math meetings and uh, i'm in boston this weekend for an event at mit so you could ask me things there and and i will hopefully answer and hopefully i'll get into my true sabbatical uh state where i can actually be responsive and not be traveling although i guess i know that's that's a true sabbatical state right i don't know (laughs) <laughs> and then, and I just feel like this speaks to a bigger problem because our math department invested heavily in paying me and paying Bosley to develop our bank and are shocked that every year we write new problems. They're like, well, didn't we already pay you for this? And I'm like, we don't keep our problems static. We do quantitative reasoning with statistics. We want to be using current up-to-date world events and recent news articles I don't feel like assessment is static. I feel like things change, courses change, LMS systems change. So this is a well, question I, of sustainable investment. Yeah. And, and current affairs change. Cause when we're looking at like our problems, you know, that talking about the, the Trump Clinton election is getting a little bit dated. So yeah, if we're trying to be culturally relevant in our classes and, and because the type of problems we do in our classes are all scenario-based, word-based problems. Yeah, it's never going to be done because we want to keep current with current events and making our problems actually relevant. Our students were not watching C-SPAN. They were watching Cartoon Network back yeah, in exactly. 2016. <laughs> Absolutely. So last question for you. If someone has heard this and God help them, I need that thing. What's your capacity? Where are you going right now with Check It in terms of your capacity? Because you still support us. You support a few other people who are down in the weeds. What what options do people have? So, I mean, if you if you are going to be patient, I would say wait a month or two until I can get the new version of Check It out because I want to make the authoring experience a lot more turnkey. So that's one of the big hopes is that I can by the end of, I'm going to, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this now end of February. That's now been said out loud in my voice. And so we'll see if I'm a liar, but, but trying to calendar him back in for the second week of March for the next interview. (laughs) Oh dear. Uh, Well, that's how I think it's done. Right. I can say these things, but also have a meeting with somebody where I have to actually show my work. Yeah. So I'm hoping to do that. The other thing. So, okay. Sociotechnical infrastructure, right? That's, that's my game. That is what I, I didn't know that term. Four years ago when I got the teammates degree learning grant, I don't know if I knew that term when I got the Pathways to Enable Open Source Ecosystems grant that I'm on for the PROS Consortium. But there's two there's two fra- parts of that phrase, right? There's technical infrastructure. There's NSF likes to call it cyber infrastructure. Like we have to get better software, better tools. And I'm try I need to work in, in improving that. But but socio is part of it as well. Like there's a social aspect to all this and there's community to all this. And 
one thing that I'm spending a lot of my time these days thinking about for pre-techs and web work and donut and runestone, these products, part of the pros ecosystem, open source ecosystem is not just how do we get better software out there, but how do we build communities to support all stakeholders in the software, the developers, the users, the, the, so the, the authors, the people who use the software just to teach the, their students, people doing research with these things. Um, I spend a lot of time on, on the pros consortium and I need to think about check it as well. And, and that's another thing that I have to spend some time thinking about is when, when do you, when do you take that plunge, right? People, I, I hear at the grading conference every year, these great hacks that people have for doing something that makes their personal experience of alternative grading better. Um, but when do you realize, oh, I need to get this into production so that other people can take advantage of it without having to email me and ask me nicely for my code? And that requires training. How do you use a GitHub? How do you, I just ran GitHub for mathematicians at the joint math meetings last week, which I, I was really happy with. And I'm hoping to do a sequel at next joint math meetings or math fest, but people need to learn how to use these tools. And then people have to learn how to develop tools that can be used by people who don't have the programming knowledge as well because that's that's uh, really where you have your impact i think i'm hearing that we need a check it developers conference well a check it developers conference I've, i'd be totally happy to do a workshop like that i did do a check it workshop in i think 2021 yeah uh, yeah i'm yeah. still i'm still sharing the uh video that came out of that for the learning mastery gradebook if you remember we uh recorded oh, yeah. that i keep getting asked for that so oh nice yeah okay well we're running quite long on time at this point so any last questions, Boz, for Stephen? No, just want to, as always, thank you for coming back on and actually coming back on so quickly because it wasn't that long ago that we had you on. And I'm sure we'll be having you back on again as you really are one of those people that are pushing forward, not just the changing in pedagogy, but also pushing forward, like you said, this social cyber in infrastructure and the tools that are allowing this to happen. So always thrilled to have you on and, and we'll likely have you on many more times. Steven, any last thoughts? Well, thank you so much for having me and and thanks to anyone who's used Check It and, and, and when you found a problem, you asked me nicely about it and, and hopefully I was able to help you with it. And uh, yeah, let's be friends and let's hang out on the slacks and, and, and work together as a community to push this forward and, and, and try to make some impact and, and improve learning for our students. At the end of the day, that's what we're all here for, right? Well, and, and yeah. Stephen, I want to thank you. I get asked to talk a lot about doing this in large classes uh, because I do run the statistics program with anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 students a year. They are small classes, but a large program. And I have to say that I think I would have given up if it hadn't been for Check It and the ability to bring that online for that program because it just has made the coordination work. It's still a lot of work. I do a lot of authoring. Boz does a lot of coding. We do a lot of Canvas bank pulling and tweaking I find a lot of your challenges like percent signs going from check it to overleaf. That was a new one this last semester because I'd never used overleaf before we had an instructor want it. So you have just been behind the scenes of a lot of my success and our success. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank everyone for listening and uh, we'll be back again next week. Please share your thoughts and comments about this episode by commenting on this episode's page on our website, 
www.thecreatingpod.com. Or you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you would like to suggest a future topic for the show or would like to be considered as a potential guest for the show, please use the contact us form on our website. The Grading Podcast is created and produced by Robert Bosley and Sharona Krinsky. The full transcript of this episode is available on our website. The views expressed here are those of the host and our guest. These views are not necessarily endorsed by the Cal State System or by the Los Angeles Unified School District.